Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Cares What's the Point, the podcast about the mind for people who think. Now often when we reach the end of a year or the beginning of a new one, we might want to take a bit of a stock take on ourselves and figure out what our plan is going forward. And one of the things that we might want to tackle or to improve is our mental health and well-being. Now there's a whole host of apps and programs and interfaces that you can choose to help you with that, but how do you know whether one is any good or not? There doesn't seem to be any kind of regulation on mental health apps, which means that you could be picking something that is at best great, might be ineffective, or might actually put you in harm's way. Listen to me as I speak to David Backer from Monash University in Australia, and we talk about some of the research that he's done looking at the way apps are structured, how we can tell if they're any good or not, and some of the work that he's been doing on developing a better mental health app for all. Basically, I've always been really interested in technology. I'm also interested in mental health. You sort of put the two together and it sort of uh, becomes itself, you know. Uh, so I started a doctor of clinical psychology, a bit like a PhD, but with a bit more practical training under a supervisor who was also developing a mental health app. Um, but it was really an app that was used as a research tool to collect a lot of mood data from people from day to day through some daily surveys. And I'm a clinician myself and I'm really interested in finding tools to help people. And when I went online to find an app that basically, um, you know, I, I would like to recommend onto clients and patients, I couldn't really find anything that I would use myself. So we basically started a whole project to develop a couple of mental health apps that we would be able to recommend to people. And before we wanted to do that, we wanted to search the literature and scour the research to find what was already out there and then publish our own recommendations uh, to guide our own app development, but also to help with other people. So that's basically what the paper um, ended up doing. It published 16 recommendations for mental health apps based on the available research. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, we've now developed a couple of apps and it's great to have them out there and, and great to see them helping people. That's a fantastic start, um, David. I think we'll come come on to those two apps that you may have developed towards the end, because um, mm -hmm. I think that'd be really interesting for our listeners. But also, I mean, I, I guess you've mentioned here that there's so many apps out there um, in this space of helping people with their mental health and well-being. And the question that people often ask is, how do I know whether it's any good or not? Um, you know, it's got nice graphics, it's got a nice interface, perhaps, but how do I know whether it's doing what it says it's, it's going to do? And how do I know that it's having an impact? Um, and what your review has done, I think, as you say, you've got 16 recommendations that either people should be looking for or things that you think should be included in an app. But you've also organized them by four levels of evidence as well, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. So that's really important. We, we wanted to really emphasize that some of those recommendations, there's a lot of research for but other ones are a bit more tenuous and kind of, you know, looking at the available evidence in surrounding fields like public health and things like that, we're taking our best guess on those really, yeah. So when you did this review, um, tell me a bit about how you went about that. How did you select and find the apps that you were reviewing or the sorts of features that an app should have? 
So we first went to the research on actual mental health apps. So it, it's a pretty small field. Uh, it was even smaller back then when we started researching for the paper. So it was it was fairly easy to to read most of the big papers that were in that field and and generally uh, a lot of those papers not only highlighted what's good in an app but also might, what might be lacking. A lot of the research was based around adapting computerized therapies onto apps. And being a sort of a technophile myself and knowing people who develop these apps, I know that that's kind of a, a little bit of a mismatch because people use their computers and their mobile phones very differently. And that wasn't really addressed too much in, in the literature. So that got us starting to think about, you know, what, how might we be able to to improve them and, and look at the field of app development and, and interface design for tablet devices and how can that be uh, better used for, for mental health. Mm. So that, that's, we, yeah. that's certainly the impression that I get sometimes is that it's almost like you're trying to shoehorn something that's been developed for a PC or a Mac or some kind of computer interface into something that's actually really very, very different and you can feel that it feels somehow wrong it doesn't feel right do you know what i mean absolutely yeah that, that, that's exactly what we we're experiencing because and even the uh, the computerized therapies themselves they they are often adapted from workbooks themselves as well so you're sort of adapting a, a pen and paper self-help workbook onto a computer and then adapting the computerized therapy onto a phone and people are doing that i think generally because once a uh, intervention uh, quote unquote has been validated through research. Researchers are then very sort of uh, hesitant to change anything in it before then translating it to a different platform. And that's because it's already been validated and, and they think that's the way it should be. But really it's the underlying principles that we want to be looking at. They're the ones that really have been validated. Mm. We should be translating those underlying principles into different modes. And, and that's yeah. kind of what we tried to do with this paper. And that's interesting, isn't it? Do you build something from the bottom up using those underlying principles or do you have this kind of issue arising then where you've got perhaps layer upon layer of you're assuming that the fidelity of the intervention that you're delivering as it moves from pen and paper to computer and then from computer to app on a tablet or a smartphone, you're assuming that the way that it's delivered and the way that it's experienced is going to achieve the same impact or experience and outcome for that user. And as you're saying, we kind of just don't know. No, we don't. And we have some pretty good guesses that it might not be. So, for example, a lot of these computerized therapies, they're kind of designed to you sat, sit down in front of the computer for about 30 minutes at a time and work your way through kind of like an online learning module that a lot of online universities might use. Now, not many people are going to sit down with their phone for 30 minutes and do something like that, which involves entering a lot of text and maybe going away for a bit and then coming back the next week and entering some more text. People use their phones in very, very short increments and they, they whip them out while they're waiting for the bus and they look at them when they're bored and to find an app that can or to find a way of interacting with the user that still honours the same principles of a 30-minute lesson but can be broken down into tiny little sort of 30-second chunks. That was kind of uh, our, our challenge next. Yeah, those sorts of um, little bits of time that people have, but because they're checking and using their smartphones or those interfaces 
frequently, but often for short periods of time. And of course, some people use them for extended periods of time, and perhaps that's another issue we can touch upon. But um, yeah, this is this is interesting to me. So, so what are the sorts of things that you were starting to find when you looked at the literature uh, originally? So, finding that there is a lot of evidence out there for cognitive behavioural therapy on computerised, but also some apps. Um, one of the big things we found was that there was a, a massive shortage of, of decent randomised controlled trials with apps. So we had to try and just sort of stretch it into the computerised therapies a little bit. But the cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, yeah, is sort of the most evidence-based therapy approach for actually most anxiety and depression disorders. Um, it's, it's based on some pretty broad principles, but it, it comes back to to um, being collaborative with the client and, and helping them identify their emotions and thoughts objectively and then helping them to challenge those in, in various ways. And so the, uh, the computerized therapies uh, do that quite well. We found that it, it could probably also apply to, to apps fairly well. Um, and then from then we, we, we sort of uh, pulled out some of the strategies that cognitive behavioral therapy uses and found the ones that are really well adapted for apps. So, for example, just objectively reporting your emotions, the thoughts that are going through your head, those are things that CBT does fairly fairly consistently during sort of the, the foundation phases of therapy. And they're really great to use with a phone because you can take your phone anywhere with you when you're feeling whatever, when anything's going through your head. You don't have to rely on your memory. So, for example... Uh, if you if you go to a therapist, they might, and they're doing cognitive behavioural therapy, they might give you a, a piece of paper that's like a thought record, and you write down your thoughts on it. Usually, when you have a moment, or, or at the end of each day, but you're relying on your memory when you're doing that, um, because you need to have remembered, you know, what was the distressing thought that I remembered this morning that I thought this morning when I was eating my breakfast. But with your phone, your phone's right there. You can pop it right down while while, you, while you're experiencing it. And get a bit of distance from that thought, just even by the recording process. So, so that was um, really important. That was th- those two recommendations: that be cognitive behavioural therapy based, and it allow you to input your your emotions and your thoughts uh, in an objective way. One of the things that you you go on to mention later on, linked to that, is the ability to access your log of past app use as well. So you're able to see, I guess, uh, trends over time and also um, develop a, a sense of yourself over time as well. What, what was behind your that recommendation there, that, that log of past app use? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's exactly what you say there. It's, it's also a, a game-based principle. So in a lot of game mechanics, you want to show the user that they have uh, invested somewhat in, in whatever sort of interface that they're engaging with. So you give people, you know, a percentage completion of a game or you give people a sense of narrative that they started at point A and now they've gone through points B, C and D, now they're at E. And that's kind of what that log does to you as well. It's related to a concept in um, a theory called self-determination theory, which helps us understand how people become intrinsically motivated to do things. And basically, one of those uh, concepts or one of those needs that you need to need to meet for someone to be motivated to do something is a feeling of competence. So people are really motivated to do things that they feel competent at, and, and they're building mastery in. And if you're able to reflect back to the user, yeah, you, you're actually getting better at this. 
And you started back there and now you're here and people are more motivated to engage further. Yeah, uh, that that idea of that positive reinforcement to keep people coming back as well for something that may be for their benefit rather than just kind of using it um, sporadically also is that sense of continuity and engagement with something that could be quite helpful for them. Yes, definitely. And something that uh, so we try and encourage people to, to do things, yeah, as you say, that are good for them basically. And if they, if they keep coming back to it uh, in, a, in a uniform sort of fashion, and it's, it's actually like uh, using the app um, and they get rewarded just through using the app and, and through sort of a, a nice positive experience while they're using the app, then they're much more likely to keep coming back and to build it into their routines eventually, which is kind of uh, our aim in, in the end to, to, to get to a point where you don't actually need to be using this app because you've already built most of the skills that it's been teaching you into your routines and, yeah, you don't need to be using it too much anymore. Mm. So one of the things that um, people often search apps for um, but also can feel a bit put off is when they have labels attached to them that can be stigmatizing. You know, it's like if this has got anxiety or depression on it, I don't see myself as anxious or depressed, so that's a no-no for me. Um, But then at the same time, there may be some things that would be beneficial for those people who perhaps are struggling with some things in their life. Um, So one of the things that you recommend is that these apps should be designed for these non-clinical populations to reduce that stigma that could arise when you have labels attached to these computer programs and apps. Yes, that's exactly right. And that sort of, it, it, it sort of melds into a number of different recommendations also that we want it to be um, trans-diagnostic, so across different diagnoses. So you don't need a diagnosis to use it. Um, but basically we're looking at tools that all humans can use because feeling low and feeling anxious are normal parts of everyday life. Sometimes they get a little bit more intense than others and sometimes they develop into a, into a sort of self-maintaining cycle that people find it very hard to break out of without some sort of extra support like an app or going to see a therapist or something like that. So if we start to use non-clinical language, if we don't say, hey, you have depression, you need to be using this app, then it does a number of different things. It, it unlocks that app or makes it available to people who don't yet have depression or don't have a, a, a diagnosis, they haven't been to their GP, anything like that. It also makes the people who maybe are experiencing depression feel a bit more normal because sometimes when you're being diagnosed with something like that, there's there's good size and band sides. You now know that it is something that's not just sort of imagined. It's it's a it's sort of a bit more quote unquote real or something like that if it's been like diagnosed. But it's also it can get people down a bit. It can be a bit sort of self stigmatizing. Like I'm now someone with depression. That, that's a that's a big sort of thing to they lay on someone. So to be able to use non-clinical language uh, acknowledges that there's a continuum of mental health and and while doctors and health professionals do find it useful to diagnose people and to place sort of categories around people. Um, it can have both bad sides, good sides. Usually a lot of the, a lot of the research now emerging, especially in trans diagnostic treatments is acknowledging that maybe diagnostic labels aren't so useful, um, both for the people going through the issues and also for health professionals. Maybe we need to be relying on on more transdiagnostic and, and underlying 
issues with things like emotion regulation, with things like, you know, not being too distressed at your own thoughts and, and other things that underlie a lot of different depression and anxiety issues. So this um, word transdiagnostic is is an interesting one. It's this idea that um, I guess that these possible interventions and possible ways of thinking about the experiences that people are having uh, don't necessarily fit into neat categories, but actually, like you say, there's a continuum of experience and actually um, intervening, doing things that are helpful to deal with that continuum, continuum of experience is actually seems to be the way forward. Yes, definitely, and, and there's there's just more and more research coming out to show that's that's a, a, a much uh, better approach to take for a lot of issues. Uh, it, it enables preventative use, so you can use it for people who aren't yet meeting diagnostic criteria for certain disorders. It also it sort of cuts out that whole assessment process at the very start um, to try and figure out exactly what box we should put you in, sort of thing, mm. and just acknowledges that that oh, no, these are all skills that everyone can use, no matter what their um, their status. One of the things that you mentioned as a recommendation is that this these apps should also be a source of mental health information as well as um, interventions because often people um, don't know enough or perhaps are finding out um, about their own experience. So, um, yeah, perhaps you could speak a little bit about the sorts of information you would see in an app like this. Yeah, absolutely. That, that definitely ties into um, things being stigmatised as well, uh, a lot of mental health information um, is, you know, it's promoted by different agencies like Beyond Blue or Headspace or other sort of big public health agencies that are, are trying to get the word out there. Um, but unfortunately, at, at this stage, that information is still fairly low level. It's, it's kind of really aiming at the um, idea that anxiety and depression and these sorts of problems exist and they're real. And still sort of trying to get the public awareness about to that point, it feels like sometimes. Um, also, you know, you should seek support for these problems. So those are the sorts of messages that they're putting out. So we're trying, we're hopefully going to get to a point where once, once, once you've gotten to the app store and you're looking for an app for mental health purposes, you, you're probably already at that point realising that mental health is, is real and, and it's something that we can get support for. So we'll try and put a bit more information into these apps that can be helpful for, for that stage. So what sorts of problems uh, self-perpetuate? Um, what sorts of therapies might be useful? Those sorts of pieces of information. And then also what sorts of supports you can seek. So a lot of people are scared by going to their GP or going to their doctor and, and telling them that they've been having these anxious or mood-related experiences, you know, they they don't know whether they're going to be locked up in a you know asylum or you know what sorts of, if they're going to be put on medication that makes them not feel any emotion or it's quite a daunting experience. So to be able to just provide a little bit of information to say no, you can just go to your your doctor and they can make a referral for you to see a psychologist. Seeing a psychologist involves basically going and talking about your problems and developing plans to do a bit of between session work over a number of different weeks. It's, it kind of makes it a little bit more approachable for people and, and they start to realise that it's not so scary. So, so that's the kind of information that we're aiming at. There might also be information on, you know, what sorts of symptoms you might experience in different disorders and things like that. But, but generally, uh, that, that's, that's a bit more fine grain, like, you know, what sorts of symptoms are in schizophrenia or, or something like that. That's a, that's a 
bit sort of deeper and, and on a need to know basis and might not help too many people rather than saying like, no, a lot of people go through these sorts of mood problems and to be able to get support from them, you do A, B and C. Hmm. Okay. So let's imagine and just take stock of where we're at. So perhaps we've got some a better understanding here through the information that we're getting from the app. And we think it's relevant to us because of the sorts of language and, and how the, the app is pitched. It's not just for people who have mental health disorders, but it's for people who are everywhere on the continuum of, of mental life. Um, and perhaps we've got um, that record of our feelings and our thoughts that's kind of embedded in that app as well. One of the things that you then go on to talk about is the activities. Um, and if we're thinking about a cognitive behavioural framework, then it's really thoughts, feelings and actions that we're talking about here. So what are the sorts of activities? One, one, one is a recommendation for activities and one perhaps is around specifically um, linking that to the sorts of moods that people are experiencing. Perhaps you could talk about that. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't just want people to be glued to their phones, sort of passively just, you know, pouring at the screen uh, and and trying to get something out of it through that. We also want people to go out uh, off their phones and try stuff out. And that's kind of what a, a lot of cognitive behavioural therapy is. It's, it's sort of while you're in the room with a therapist, you might be talking about your problems and figuring out solutions. But then between the sessions, that's when the magic starts. And that's where you get to try stuff out and see if it actually helps. So by recommending some activities to people who are using these apps, perhaps they can learn new ways of coping with, you know, anxiety or coping with feeling low. They can learn new ways of becoming a a little bit more sort of uh, active if they're feeling like they're slumping into, um, you know, a period of depression or, or ways of relaxing themselves if they're feeling anxious. And by linking those activities specifically across to the to the problems that they've reported through the app, then we can give people sort of like a, oh, you've been feeling X, why not try Y? And that's really satisfying to people. That, that was kind of uh, my main frustration actually early on when I started looking at these apps. Um, you know, I, I was feeling a mixture of feelings going through uni and and going through life changes and things like that. And I just really wanted to be able to turn somewhere and say, I'm feeling this, what should I do? And there was really nothing out there. You go online and you sort of Google that on in Google and, and, and it doesn't really help you. It sort of returns like, you know, uh, one in four people experience anxiety. And that's helpful, you know, to make me feel a little bit better, but it doesn't really do anything for me right now because I'm I'm feeling anxious about this particular issue in my life. So if we're able to give people coping strategies right away, then they'll feel supported. They'll, they'll feel like they're able to cope, which is really important for people to feel like confident in their own ability to cope with their emotions. So that's what really recommending activities is getting to the heart of it. It's, it's arming people with the strategies to be able to help themselves. And you talk about that real-time engagement, don't you? It's actually in the moment you get those options that are going to be helpful to you. Yeah, that's really important, especially for mobile devices, because you could be on the bus and you start having, um, you know, the first signs of a bit of a panic attack or something like that. And most people, I mean, it, it, it would be really scary in that moment. But if you're able to turn to your phone and, and you're able to, and you know before you get on that bus that there might be a strategy in an app that can help you in the moment, then that can be incredibly useful for, for people to cope. 
So it, it's a real strength of the phone to be able to take with you out into the real world, away from you know the confines of your home or the confines of the therapy room. And if you're able to, to engage with it in real time when you're going through the emotions, when you're experiencing the thoughts, then it might actually improve the learning as well. You might learn uh, deeper if you're able to immerse yourself in the strategies while the problems are happening. Mm. We've talked a lot about the the apps and, and that engagement with the smartphone and with the tablets. One of the things that you recommend as well, though, is the um, encouraging non-technology-based activities too. Perhaps you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah, and that sort of links through to uh, encouraging people to get off their phones for, for periods of time. It's it's trying to avoid the um, the hazard of people becoming glued to their phones because they believe that their phone is is the way to cope. So we're going to try and encourage non-technology-based activities, not necessarily because technology is quote-unquote bad and, you know, rots your brain or turns your eyes square or anything, but just because we don't want it to become a crux. We don't want people to become over-reliant on technology and, and to be able to use strategies that we all have on us at all times, no matter if we have a phone in a pocket or not, um, then we, can, we should be encouraging those sorts of activities. There has been research done that, you know, is starting to link some patterns of technology use to depression and anxiety, and, and we are aware of that. But there are many, many ways that technology can be incredibly useful for one's mental health. There's research linking uh, social engagement on uh, th- through through technology with with improved outcomes from depression, but then also studies that are showing you know uh, that non-social use of technology. Um, for, for example, even browsing Facebook but not engaging with mm. posts or anything like that, then that can be a predictor of depression. So, so there are both good and bad ways of using technology. We just don't want people to become over-reliant on it generally. Yeah, that's right. There is some research research showing that kind of passive versus active um, social engagement. Um, so, yes, I guess one of the things you'd have to think quite carefully about is is um, the adaptivity of the app as new evidence comes to light. And I guess that's one. The last recommendation here is the um, the experimental trials to not only, I guess, establish efficacy but also prevention of harm too, which I think you've hinted at. Yes, that's that's very important. Uh, that, that was even though it's sort of the last recommendation, it's kind of the most important one because there are so many apps out there that just no uh, thought has been put into whether they work or not, and that's quite disturbing. Uh, seeing it from a, from a healthcare professional point of view, you you wouldn't go to your doctor and and ask for a, a, a drug that um, no trials have been done. You have no no idea what's in it. Um, but there are so many apps out there that, that have have no research for them and then also don't acknowledge any evidence-based framework. So there are definitely apps out there that say this uses CBT and for these reasons that's why it's sort of linked to evidence and, and that's great, that's actually a great start. But then to be able to actually do a research trial using the app and to see whether it actually helped people in the real world in similar circumstances to what users might find themselves in that's really important. And there's a bit more research being done recently now that researchers are trying to get their head around how to use an app, how to fit it into, the, into their sorts of research designs, but it's still lacking a lot. Um, and there are a few different sort of challenges there as well. The gold standard of much research is the randomised controlled trial. So, you know, you get 
number of different groups and you allocate them different conditions and with an app it might be one group gets the app and one group is on a wait list or gets a different sort of app that doesn't have the uh, magical ingredient in it, the placebo app if you will. And then you can pair them over time and you can pair whether the the group that's using the app um, does improve uh, their anxiety and depression. But that's also plagued with a few problems. I mean, for, for a start, people download apps naturally off the app store. And instead, in a randomized controlled trial, we've got a group of people who have signed up for a research study. So they're two quite different sorts of people. So we can't necessarily draw uh, all of our conclusions for randomized controlled trials. But we also find that it's really important because, you know, if you download an app, and you believe it's it's working for you, there might be some sort of placebo effect in that. So you might report that your actually anxiety and depression is alleviating after a month or so. So we've, we've got to find some ways of studying apps that are a little bit more uh, fine-grained in in the sort of uh, the sort of research that they, get, they can achieve and the, the outcomes that they can they can uh, based on. But yeah, it's it's still an ongoing process within the field. Mm. I, I think it touches upon another recommendation that you make. I mean, I can imagine a scenario where you have two, three, four apps with actually very basically similar content, yet the user interface is quite different so that people engage with the content in a different way, in a deep way, in a more practical way. So actually, uh, from an app technical standpoint they're not that different but from a user experience and engagement point of view it may make all the difference that's very true yeah there's there's so many different little uh trials that can be done i'm sort of sort of quite excited about the whole idea that we can be using uh, technology in this way to be conducting research and i mean google and these big tech companies do it all the time they adjust their home page slightly differently and run massive experimental trials basically across their users to to find the optimum placement of different boxes and buttons and the same could be done for mental health apps and for for many apps in that case and not only to optimize um you know whether someone's coming back to the website or coming back to the app as most apps and websites do that's what they're trying to optimize for mental health apps are trying to optimize the mental health outcomes that, that people are getting off them. So, so maybe there is a certain way to lay out a screen or a certain color or a certain way of interacting with the app that would improve someone's mental health beyond a normal sort of uh, intervention scheme. Yeah, I imagine if you could leverage some of the uh, some of the power of those big tech companies and the the power of that data and the, the numbers that they could uh, leverage into that, you know, those minute changes to see what difference it, it could make. Imagine how powerful that would be. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's um, yeah, it's very exciting. It's it's a bit of a pipe dream, but yeah, that that would be amazing. Yeah. So so tell me, David, where where are you with this now? You mentioned that you were um, this development of a couple of apps that this work was part of. Can you tell us a bit more about what you were doing? Absolutely. So when I started this whole project, um, my supervisor and and a few other research students were developing a, an app, um, which turned out to be called Mood Prism. So it's, um, it's basically a mood tracking app that you go to every day and you report how you're feeling and then it feeds back how you're feeling over time throughout this sort of in- colourful sort of mood diary 
there are a few other apps out there that do a similar thing, um, but we believe that Mood Prism was uh, was the sort of most comprehensive, really, uh, of, of them because it, it didn't ask you, you know, just how you're feeling on a one continuum or would you describe how you're feeling as angry or anything like that. It went through sort of, I think, about 16 questions that were taken from well-valid added measures, very quick questions, but then can filter all of that information down and, di- and to distill it into a single mood rating. So that was one app that we developed um, and released, and it's still very much a research app. It was, it was designed to collect a lot of research data for myself and my lab colleagues, um, but it, it was available. We studied it, and we found that people who were more engaged with the app um, did actually generally improve their mental health and well-being over the 30 days of use. Um, we published those results recently as well, so that, that's exciting to see. So the second app that we developed is called Mood Mission, and that's quite a bit different to Mood Prism in that Mood Prism was a mood tracking app and Mood Mission is an activity-focused app. So you go to it when you're feeling low or anxious, you say how you're feeling, and then it gives you a list of five to ten coping strategies that you can do right now. Um, these are things that are very short. They might take sort of five to ten minutes. You can do them in most circumstances. They might be sort of short relaxation strategies, little uh, exercises like walking around the block or something like that. And you pick one of those strategies. You go and do it. You come back to the app and, again, rate how you feel and hopefully you're feeling better. And through your rating, Mood Mission can then tailor itself to you over time. So it sort of learns the way you cope. And then the more you use it, the better it gets at uh, providing you the right sort of strategies. So we've done research using that as well. And we're sort of in the uh, scheme of publishing that right now. We did find really um, promising results in that as well, that people's depression and anxiety decreased and their mental well-being increased over 30 days of use. And that was, uh, that, that was mapped onto their engagement. So basically, the, the, the more you use the app or the more engaged you are in the app, the better the outcomes are, we found as well. Um, we've used both of these apps in a randomized controlled trial as well as just looking at the data that, it, that the apps were able to collect off natural users who downloaded the app naturally off the app store. So we, we basically sort of triangulated through multiple methods um, that the apps are usable, that the apps have effectiveness in, in sort of real world scenarios with people downloading them off the app store, and also that there's efficacy that we sort of established through a randomized controlled trial. So, yeah, we're really excited about these apps, especially sort of Mood Mission is, is uh, my baby now, so <laughs> I'm very excited about that one. Um, we're now going to release a few updates going forward and make them better and try, and try and keep them up to date with all the latest evidence as well um, because Mood Mission itself, like there, there's a system where the content of the app can be updated on the fly um, as new evidence comes out for new well-being strategies so we can sort of add the latest strategies into the app. And, yeah, keep collecting data, uh, completely de-identified, but keep collecting the data to, to show the app is working and also to answer some more exciting research questions to, to, to improve the app and to prove other apps like it. So, David, just to summarise then, because I think you've given us a really good overview as to the work that you're doing and, and some of the apps you're developing, but who should be caring about this research? What, what is the point here? What's the nub of this? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think there are, there are many sort of stakeholders that, that should be really interested in this. I think 
you know, I, I could go broad enough to say that anyone with a phone, <laughs> really, like people use their phones for all sorts of different reasons, and uh, and a lot of them, you know, they might be using them already, sort of subconsciously for emotion regulation purposes, if we want to use the jargon. Um, you know, if, if you're feeling a bit upset, you might go and browse on Facebook, or you might use your phone for something like that. So to know that there are apps out there that could be a little bit more helpful and uh, and arm you with strategies that that are uh, more powerful or more adaptive, more efficient, that would be really useful. We also, you know, I, I think this is really important for psychologists and uh, GPs and any other health professionals that are involved in the mental health space, for them to know which apps are good and, and where to turn to and when apps are appropriate and when they might not be. That's also really important because because a lot of these professionals don't really have too much an awareness of, about the apps that are out there and might actually be introduced to a lot of these apps through their patients and clients. So to, to be on top of things and to, to know what's got good evidence and, and maybe what they should be trying to get their patients and clients to use more of, that would be really important for them. Um, I'm also passionate about people uh, or uh, kids in schools um, knowing what to use and, and, and being in that sort of, especially the adolescence phase of, of learning uh, new coping strategies to cope with the things that you're going through. Like adolescence is a, is a massive turbulent time where new things come into your life and new experiences and new problems and you have to sort of figure out new ways of dealing with them. And if we can arm these, these kids with, uh, with apps to, to help them because they're already on their phones, they're, they're already sort of using apps for, for many different reasons. If we can also um, get them to be using them for these sorts of reasons, then, then it might redirect um, the, the outcomes of their mental health as well. Um, a lot of mental health problems can be prevented before the age of 25 or before the age of 18 even. So, so helping um, teachers, helping parents and helping kids use these apps is, is really important to me as well. Thanks for listening to the show today. Hope you enjoyed that. You can follow me on Twitter at Saab, S-A-R-B, or the show at WCWTP. Um, you can find me at saabjohal.com. I am the host and producer of the show. Uh, whocareswhatsthepoint.com, contact at whocareswhatsthepoint.com is another way of getting hold of us, as is the Facebook site, facebook.com forward slash WCWTP. We have a Patreon campaign going on at the moment, patreon.com forward slash Saab Johal, S-A-R-B-J-O-H-A-L. Uh, if you'd like to contribute and support the show, that would be fantastic. Um, other than that, please enjoy uh, whatever it is you're doing, and don't forget. Who cares? What's the point? Thank you.